0: But is there common ground on Confederate monuments? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get
1: a pulse? Barely.
2: Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurses' station.
1: Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through.
3: prosperity for Central America is basically based on an economic model based on foreign investment and foreign profits, based on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the
0: evangelicals was was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing... There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes,
3: there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dignity of man.
0: In 1905, the Chicago Defender, a nationally respected black newspaper, featured an article titled, Tear the Spirit of the Confederacy from the South. Destroy all flags, records, and other symbols of antebellum days. Of course, that wish can never be accomplished. The dust of time has been blown off monuments to the leaders like General Lee as part of the most intense revival of the spirit and values of the Confederacy by millions of Trumpists across the country. The angry, hateful, blatantly white supremacist spirit didn't come into being with the election of their hero, Donald Trump. Since the military defeat of the Southern nation, it has not gone away. The only thing that changed was the lid came off the sewer, and it stunk up the whole country, my opinion. Monuments are there to glorify what leaders and movements in history uh, that some insist must be honored so that their legacy will not be forgotten by future generations. In recent years, these monuments have reappeared in national news, the battle between those who feel strongly that these people and events do not deserve public honor and those who insist they remain. The battle over memory is nearly always integral to how history is remembered and how the world is of right now is seen and understood. That's where memory comes in. Our guest today is historian Karen Cox, whose new book is No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Karen Cox, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
3: I'm glad
0: to be with you. Karen Cox is an award-winning historian, distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, and professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's written op-eds for venues such as New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and Time. Dr. Cox is the author of three previous books, including Dixie's Daughters, The United Daughters of the Confederacy, and The Preservation of Confederate Culture, and Dreaming of Dixie, How the South Was Created, in American popular culture. Interesting stuff, especially for a Northerner like me. Movements are mon- <laughs> <laughs> You are a Southerner, and that gives you a good perspective on it. Monuments are there to shape how we see history and to shape our values. For example, while hitchhiking through Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, probably 50 years ago, I walked by a monument that I can never forget. It said, to Captain William Turner... Who, with his men, surprised and destroyed over 300 Indians encamped at this place. It was meant to glorify a slaughter. And on the uh, World War I monument in Chateau Thierry has the word glory carved in huge letters, the idea being to make war attractive to young boys of the future. Cox's book, No Common Ground, is the story of the seemingly invincible stone sentinels that are just beginning to fall from their pedestals. As with those two personally, I witnessed, what is the purpose of monuments and why, with all of them, really is there no common ground?
3: Um, well, I think that, um, you know, monuments often are a reflection of the generation that placed them there. The Confederate monuments that that are at issue today were placed there 30, 40, 50 years after the Civil War ended. And this is about their attempt to vindicate the Confederacy and vindicate uh, Confederate soldiers and, and to do so in very public places um, uh, as and, and a means of shaping memory uh, in some ways, uh, but also reminding uh, Black Southerners in the South in particular, that, uh, you know, that they're second-class citizens and, um, and the, you know, placing them adjacent to a courthouse um, is very purposeful. And and then, you know, the no common ground, the way th- this book has a couple of meanings, I, you know, there's no common ground in terms of um, uh, how people on both sides of this issue perceive what these monuments mean. Um there never have been there never has been any common ground, mm. so that's part of it and then and then the no common ground, the other part of this is that um on the grounds of courthouses, which should be democratic spaces, which should be shared ground, it's not common ground, and so that's that's where the the title comes from,
0: interesting because you know certainly individuals have a right to put up. You know, non-hateful things on their own property and their lawn, but the point I think about, you know, courthouses—that absolutely, I mean, if that's not common ground, I don't know what is. And you know, it—it just having them there uh, reinforces uh, something that is not common ground for sure. And various authoritarian regimes around the world are conscious of the need to own and control what is accepted as history, to control the modern memory. Hitler, for example, wanted to make Judaism in Europe disappear. He uh, wanted to abolish what they called degenerate art. Memory is now. It's not the past. It's like a battery in us for action we take now. What about the power of what becomes official memory?
3: Yes, this is the thing. <clears throat> about um, what we call the lost cause, which is the the narrative memory of the war of the Civil War um, by white Southerners, uh, that basically revises what the Civil War had been about. You know that that was only it, this was a, a fight over states' rights and not over slavery. Uh, uh, it it makes uh, heroes and out of out of Confederate soldiers and. Uh, raises people like Robert E. Lee to, you know, these untouchable Christian warriors, you know. So, um, there, and there are lots of layers to this, to this myth. And so, it's such a powerful myth. It's, it, it was, it developed immediately after the war ended, and as and a way for former Confederates and for white Southerners of future generations to uh, come to terms with defeat. They couldn't see they were defeated so badly, they just, they they couldn't even fathom, you know, they felt like their cause was a just cause and a sacred cause. They would actually use those words and they couldn't have imagined defeat. So the lost cause narrative kind of develops as a way to help them deal with defeat and, and basically develop a revisionist history of the civil war. And so it was so uh, powerful that it, it uh, was uh, perpetuated uh, generation after generation, and 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 it appears you know it you know it shapes the way uh, public school children are taught. It shapes uh, uh, textbooks, and and so you know we, we see this happening generations you know well into the 20th century, such that we even today will have people say, "Oh, this was this was a battle over states' rights. Uh, this wasn't about slavery." and that's how powerful that memory is
0: and that's what those uh statues and monuments are there to uh to enforce and reinforce and I'm as you were describing that as regular listeners know I'm kind of fascinated endlessly by the first world war the germans after uh they officially lost the first world war refused to believe it and considered that uh, in a way it was sort of a lost cause too that they kept on fighting, and we know yeah. the danger and the death and destruction that came from believing that falsehood. Yeah, it is It is important for sure. You're writing about Southern history and its memory from a uniquely strong position. You are a Southerner yourself. Why does that make a difference?
3: I, I really do believe this makes a, a big difference, that Um, Because the people who are, say, monument defenders can't say to me, you're just some northern liberal coming down here to tell us what to do, Um, you know, and and so it it puts me in a better position, uh, more of a position of authority, because I grew up in the region, I know what these uh, statues are about, I know why people believe one way or the other, and and uh, it's, it's, it's some part of that is a way of disarming them, mm. you know, because it's like, wh- I'm your, I'm a Southerner, just like you. Um, and, and I don't believe what you believe, you know, and, and, um, and I'm, I think it's, you know, for me as a historian, too, it's just really important, to you know, you know, not only not to try to interpret this for them, but just present that the facts of it to them. Um, you can't deny, um, for example, a uh, an unveiling speech in which um, the speaker is touting um, the preservation of Anglo-Saxon supremacy, mm. which is the words that they would have used. Mm. You know, and, and so I don't have to tell you that it's about white supremacy. I'll let you, them tell you mm. what it's about.
0: Interesting that, that takes away uh, one of their weapons again, you know that could be against you if you were a northern liberal, they can't deny it as much. Of course, facts uh, oftentimes are rejected and you know the anti-science movement of the, uh, the Trumpists, but there it is there, and that is certainly helpful. And the fact that you're from there, uh, it's got to disarm them a fair amount. And before the current uproar about monuments in the wake of the spate, video-recorded police killings of unarmed black people. You argue that this debate stretches at least back to 1894 and a women's organization called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Though not the first Southerners to dedicate a statue to the lost cause, why do they figure so centrally in this conversation today? And how and why did they grow from a tiny membership at that time to about 100,000 at the time of the first world war
3: <clears throat> yes this was um this was actually you know a second generation of women uh that were responsible for placing monuments there was there had been the ladies memorial associations who had placed them in cemeteries and and uh you begin to see monuments uh after reconstruction being put in you know uh parks and thoroughfares uh in southern cities. But it's really the United Daughters of the Confederacy or the UDC that is responsible for the vast majority of monuments uh, that went up um, between their founding and, and about World War One. And they made monument building and Confederate memory about vindication. They wanted to vindicate the Confederacy and vindicate Confederate soldiers. And... What's important about what they did was that they placed the vast majority on courthouse lawns. Yeah. So they're a significant organization, and, and they're responsible for the vast majority of these Jim Crow monuments, which are the monuments that um, are often at the center of debates today. Sure.
0: How is it that they got to be put up on public land, specifically courthouses? That, that's, that's an impressive feat on their part.
3: Well, you know these women were uh married to uh or related to men of power in the region. Uh-huh. they were middle and upper class women mm. they uh they knew the uh who, you know the people at the courthouse or the whoever it was you know that they're, they're, they are they might have been married to the mayor or they were related somehow to the city city council members or that sort of thing. but the thing about this is is that um they they're very much in step with the men. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, of the region on the issue of white supremacy and Mm -hmm. what should happen with these things. And essentially they had carte blanche to do what they wanted. They didn't have to, I, you know, part of the, there's lots of debates down here about, you know, who owns the monument? Ah. Do the UD, does the UDC own the monument? Does the County own the monument? This is the day. And the reason is there's no paperwork. (laughs) You know, they just said, Oh yeah, you can put that monument out there. (laughs) Um, But I think it's very purposeful (laughs) that it's 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 um, on the grounds of courthouses. It's the center Center. of town, you know, it's center of these these counties. And it's, you know, and it's sends a message to uh, black citizens that, you know, who is in charge here and who are second class citizens.
0: Yeah, that that would seem to be, uh, unfortunately, a very effective strategy. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Karen Cox, who's got a brand new book out, uh, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. And the message that goes out, I mean, the message of uh, Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of uh, George Floyd is not, in my opinion, unlike the message of lynchings. You know, this is it. We got you. I mean, he was so casual about it, just doing it. And and having to reinforce that, that's, uh, I guess, part of the old Southern culture that's, uh, boy, it, 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 cultural change happens slowly. And speaking of slowly, 30 years after beginning your research into the United Daughters of the Confederacy and unable to escape the history of Confederate statues, you wrote in 2019 <clears throat> that you were, quote, sick of talking about the damn monuments. So what sparked you to write this book and re-engage in a debate you were sick of?
3: Right. I, I had been on the road for two years, and it seemed like every time my phone rang, it was another journalist wanting to know about uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and these monuments. And I I realized, I, I think that um, I felt like I knew this probably better than anyone else, uh-huh. to be quite honest. Uh-huh, um, sure. I'd been doing it for a long time. And I just – I remember having a conversation with the uh, the editor um, at the press, and I, I thought – I I just – I said, give me a minute. But I knew. I looked myself in the mirror and said, you know you're going to write this. You know you're going to <laughs> <laughs> you know do this, Right. Um, and then it became for me about to me as a historian. I feel a a responsibility to tell the truth of history, mm-hmm. and to and to make a, a especially on this issue. I wanted to make it crystal clear what the monuments represent and have represented for over a hundred years. Um, and and uh, and I think part of me was hesitant about going over. Um familiar territory you know the the monuments that you know from the end of the Civil War up through World War one, but what I did was sort of took a fresh approach to that, and then I learned quite a bit um about the period since World War one mm. and was able to bring the story up you know the story was still an ongoing story uh last summer you know i i was I probably would have ended the book with uh, the story of Charlottesville mm-hmm. and then George Floyd was murdered. And then next thing, you know, the, you know, the protests took aim in, in the South, it took aim at a, at Confederate monuments. And here I was again. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's an important, um, it's important for people to understand, you know, and what those connections are and the longer history of the, of these statues.
0: Some historians said how good it would be if everybody could think with history. It so rarely happens. And what happened to you with your knowledge and awareness of that? There's a Hebrew word, mitzvah, which means sort of, this is what you have to do. You have to do this. It sounds like you were acting on your mitzvah. And the book is, uh, the, the cover of it has a, a monument of uh, Robert E. Lee, I believe, with projected on it uh, No Justice, No Peace, and a picture of George Floyd and up on the horse that Lee is sitting on, BLM. So, yeah, talk about timely, my goodness. And Winston— yeah, I, I, go I could
3: not have predicted that, you know, I couldn't have <laughs> predicted that. And now I kind of think maybe almost now I feel like maybe I could predict it. And the reason Uh, is uh. since the Charleston massacre of 2015, this has been the pattern. There's some awful, terrible, there's some racial violence or violence of some kind. There's some removal of Confederate symbols. Then it was the battle flag, but it was also monuments. And then things died down, and then Charlottesville happened, and then you saw the same reaction, and then things died down. And then, you know, what happened to George Floyd um, last summer uh, created the, probably the biggest uh, response and, uh, and protest um, that, that we've seen yet. And things have, there's a little calm, but, you know, there's a mm. sense that, you know, this could erupt again. and um, And so... Yeah, I I couldn't have predicted, you know, that last summer when I was writing and it obviously changed the ending of the book.
0: Mm. Boy, you just never know about history. It just it's always surprising. And the fact that <laughs> when I grew up in the 50s and 60s and yes, I am that old, I thought that racism was just something that happened, you know, it's just a few white crackers down south. But I mean, Trump just you know, added fuel to the fire tremendously, he gave it all oxygen. I I was surprised that so much of it was still there. And it obviously is still there. And there are people who who fight for it. And I don't know if it can ever be racism. Just I I don't, I don't get it. I really, I, I guess people are so insecure, white people that they have to be, well, yeah, I may not be much, but at least I'm better than that black person. I don't, I don't know, but it it is there. And trying to deal with it appropriately in history, boy, it's a hard challenge. And being interested in history, Winston Churchill once said, Lee, General Lee, was the noblest American who had ever lived and was one of the greatest commanders known to the annals of war. That's from Winston Churchill. And, of course, Winston Churchill was... Quite a racist himself. Uh, Lee was respected by soldiers of the Union who fought against him during the war against Southern Independence. And at least two presidents displayed a portrait of General Lee in their presidential office. Teddy Roosevelt and Eisenhower. Do we not need to honor great commanders even if we didn't like what they stood for? I mean, doesn't the military routinely honor leaders of the other side they just beat? you know i think of uh, baron von uh, Richthofen. when when he was shot down he got great military honors by the uh, uh the allies what about that honoring great military leaders in general
3: i think it's an issue with the military and with men <laughs> i'm not you know I, I you know i don't know that that's you know that that quote by churchill tells me he he bought into the lost cause too and a lot of these um um uh, military men have uh, are have bought into the lost cause and uh-huh. and um you know there's a a new book out by Ty Seigel, who was taught at history at West Point about called Robert e lee and me I think that's the name of mm. it in which he he addresses that kind of thing around the you know why you know this you know so many people in the history of uh uh, of the military, you know, in, in our country, have like you know, honored people that, um, you know, were questionable. I mean, I, I honestly don't get it. You know, I mean, they, you know, as I think that um, African Americans had a better uh, point of view about about that monument on Richmond Avenue to Robert E. Lee, and uh, which was like, why are we uh, why are we celebrating a traitor? Um, why are we celebrating someone who led an army to perpetuate? human slavery. Mm-hmm. Why are we celebrating someone who took up arms against the United States? Which was basically a violation of his oath as a, as a U.S. soldier.
0: Absolutely. And and then fast forward to January 6th when you had people carrying uh, the Confederate battle flag into the capital of the United States. It's still there. And it just it, it was surprising to me, but somehow it's still there and i'm just curious about how many of these monuments to southern leaders are there still up perhaps i don't know if you can uh, gauge on on private property you know but on public grounds any idea
3: well the, the 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 numbers the figures that we the best figures that we have come from the southern poverty law center uh-huh good people and there were there of monuments now there are all kinds of memorials markers street names school names park Mm -hmm, names you mm -hmm. know put those aside Mm -hmm. of of monuments alone there probably were built between 750 and 800 monuments were built now and that's to some are leaders some are just the common soldier you know depends on where you live in a, you know, in the, in the region, what kind of monument there will be bigger monuments at the state capitol. So 750 to 800 total were built of that number. Let's say it's 800 of that number, maybe around 100 have been removed. That means there are still 700.
0: Mm. There's always work to do. And I'm someone who, who really you know values learning from history and you say removing a monument is not an erasure of history please say more about what you mean
3: yes i that's just a bogus argument to me um because um I'm a historian um right i know how these things work right <laughs> um uh, so much i mean we've there's been Many things that have been removed we've removed um Jim Crow signs that say colored entrance or whites only
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, those things those are not acceptable um and they've been removed, but we still know the history of jim crow yes and 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 we'll always be able to know the history of these monuments because there are photographs, there are postcards there are the speeches that were given during the unveiling and um there are books of history and Anyone, even if you didn't pick up my book, you could go to an archive or a library and learn about these things. So history hasn't been erased. What is happening if a monument is removed is you've removed a symbol of divisiveness.
0: Ah, that's a good point. A symbol of divisiveness. Well, we are not united, I don't think. Um, Though the primary objective back in the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville had been to mobilize white supremacists. It did that, but it also provided an outcome altogether unexpected by its organizers, from Richmond to Louisville to Atlanta. Tell us about the public outcry for monument removal that it fueled. It's like it intended to do one thing, but kind of uh, led something else, unexpected, sort of the opposite reaction.
3: Right, I mean the the organizers of the Unite you know, the Right rally. I mean the ruse was we're here to you know defend the possible removal of the Robert E. Lee monument in Charlottesville, and um, really what it was was to uh, was a call to arms among white nationalists and white supremacists, and and so um, rather than drawing attention to the supposed you know removal of Confederate monuments, you know like a con- to in that you know, hopefully, you know, people should rally and want to protect these statues. What They had the complete opposite effect. Um, When people saw what had happened in in Charlottesville, um, rather than want to protect the monuments, they wanted to remove the monuments. And they vandalized the monuments and whatever they could do. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it had the complete opposite effect. And I, I would say, you know, even... You know we have these monument laws and or the heritage protection acts that are on the books uh, in all these uh, uh, across the south and southern states that prevent local uh, governments from removing monuments um and so what we've seen then is that well, what happened last summer, which was mm-hmm. if there is no legal recourse if there's no, if the local government cannot remove a monument and there's no legal recourse uh, to have one removed, then um, what you see is vandalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, people or, or we'll rip it down ourselves. You know, local activists will do that, um, and so uh, that it's it's had the opposite effect. It's not protected mm-hmm. these monuments; It's has led to their destruction.
0: Interesting. I, I kind of like, how I must say. And as one who reads a lot of history, I'm not a historian, but I like reading it all the time. Nearly all and only about the First World War, which I find endlessly fascinating. That's what I read. It seems to me that historiography is always subjective. Uh, You may disagree with that. All historiography, historical writing, has a cultural base. As you point out, almost immediately after the so-called Civil War, because, again— To me, the South was not trying to take over the whole country. They just wanted to leave. The Spanish Civil War was a genuine civil war where they wanted to take over the central government. But be that as it may, the the supporters of the Confederacy started writing their own version of the history of that war. They were defeated militarily, but their values and sense of identity clearly were not defeated. Should they have, could they have just accepted... As Germany Germany finally did after the Second World War, that their cultural values were defunct. Can they ever accept that? And what a, what? A, it sounds like the, the monuments issue is a part of of perhaps making that happen. Your thoughts?
3: Right. Well, no. They they were you know they had just <laughs> they they're unreconstructed, right? The the you know the. <laughs> you know, following Reconstruction and, you know, these, uh, these, you know, former soldiers started rewriting history and, and, and you get textbooks that do the same thing in the 20th century. And, and so um, I, you know, there, there was no acceptance. I mean, military, as we say, they, you know, uh, they lost the war, but won the peace. And, um, and so uh, that, that narrative, uh, that, you know the lost cause that's been perpetuated for generations is again such a powerful narrative that uh, even some you know Northerners believe in it, um, and um, and so I don't you know this is I think what we've got to do is is uh, think about the way you know people learn history and what history that they're learning. You know it's it's you know if we've had several generations of you know this. Um, you know, pro-Confederate narrative going on in the South, you know, it's like we've got to, we had to at some point turn it around. And, and I think um, what you're seeing now, you know, this, this sort of, there's a backlash against historical fact right now. We've got, we've got um, Southern legislatures wanting, passing legislation that says, you know, you you have to teach history a certain way. Right. You have to focus on the founding fathers. You can't talk about negative things like slavery. <laughs> you know you can't talk about racism you know it, it's that kind of thing that's that's happening and, and I think you know they know as well as we know on both sides of this, we know the power of history yeah. and and we and we've got to win that battle, I think.
0: I, I wonder if if we can and and you know certainly they uh they don't want to believe it, and the culture just uh, doesn't seem to go away no matter what the facts are. They cling to those values. and i I'm hoping that over time, it can have less and less. I mean, but then again, you know, Trump breathed new life into this whole uh, Southern racist thing. And in the mid twentieth century, as you're right, Confederate culture, didn't make as many monuments as in the early 1900s. But it was this era's reinvigorated embrace of the existing monuments, you write, that characterized its energy and promise for the lost cause. How so?
3: Yes. I, I want to just say one thing about your comment about Trump and reviving Southern racism. Racism is an American problem, not a Southern problem. Absolutely true. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And so I, I think, you know, because there are people, in, you know, in the north that that wave battle Confederate battle flags. Oh, yeah. So we've, we've got to be watch out for those folks in your, you know, in those communities, too. Um, but yeah, but what what you're seeing in the 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, during the civil rights movement, they're already, you know, it's not that there are a bunch of new monuments going up. There are new monuments, about 20 in each of those decades. Um and then you have the Civil War Centennial, which in the South is very much a pro-Confederate mm-hmm. uh, centennial. Um, and, and so the ways and, – and so these, these monuments are, on, you know, are there, and what, what you begin to find is that people will you – know, again, monuments aren't static. Not these monuments. Con- Confederate monuments may look like they're, not, they're just standing there, but they have meaning, and people use them for different purposes. So in the 50s, for example, you know, you on a uh, we, uh, commemorating uh, Confederate Memorial Day, you might have a, yeah. you know, a state representative, as you did in Mississippi, stand next to the Confederate monument and not talk about uh, Confederate memory, but talk about um, how they feel under attack by the federal government. And uh, they're concerned about communism. And, mm-hmm. and so, the, the, you know, they add, they add layers to that narrative. Um and so and you know, and then we have, you know, on college campuses these this Kappa Alpha fraternity that considers Robert E. Lee its spiritual founder. Um those they reenact secession at local Confederate monuments. And um and so it's 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 uh, uh you know and it's and it's being done in a very public way and it's and it's yeah. It's uh reaffirming the values of white supremacy and racism and and uh through this this sort of uh these rituals yes. and commemorations and and making, you know, and, and it's the making a statement to local black citizens, you know, you're still yeah. second class.
0: It's it's true that certainly rituals are extremely important to any culture anywhere in any time. And certainly the whole country was dependent on slavery. It wasn't, yes, it, it was physically in the South, but the whole country, and there's racism everywhere. It, it's, let's face it, it is. You're right. Absolutely right. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is historian Karen Cox, whose new book is No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments, and the Ongoing Fight for racial justice. And speaking of the 60s, it was in 1965, you write, that blacks became notably more assertive in expressing contempt for Confederate symbols. That must have been a little bit uh, taking some chutzpah and a little bit uh, brave. And what changed there in in 65 that they uh, became more assertive in uh, expressing contempt for those symbols?
3: Well, <clears throat> it basically has to do with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We that's, have, that's great. and you know, there's an opportunity now. You know, if uh, to elect um, uh, individuals who look like you, you know, for among the black community, who look like them, who can represent them. And um, you know, uh, one of the first things I talk about is James Meredith, who. Uh-huh.
2: Um,
3: uh, who led what he called the March Against Fear um, from Memphis, Tennessee, to Jackson, Mississippi, and it was really about registering voters. And uh, of course, you know, he was shot f- just a few miles into the state of Mississippi. And they, you know, and uh, and what you saw is, you know, uh, all the the civil rights leaders come come to the force, Stokely Carmichael, Martin Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. is there. And they continue the march, and it becomes known as the Meredith March. And um, as they go into, you know, these towns in the Delta, they kind of coalesce around a Confederate monument. And, to, and, and you know, and what you're hearing there, you know, is not speeches about Confederate soldiers. It's about civil rights and voting rights. And, and, um, and so they're, uh, they're beginning in, in that time to really reclaim the space, um, these spaces around Confederate monuments, in in doing that, and it is much more confrontational. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, and and you know, in the '70s, you begin to see that the first some of the earliest um, Black elected officials in the South since Reconstruction uh, are now um, serving on you know city councils, and are saying you know that you know they represent the the Black community. Uh, they represent the entire community, but they're saying, you know what, uh, confederate monuments and confederate battle flags on the grounds of government uh, is, is not a good look. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, and it's, it's a slap in the face of black citizens in this, in this community. And, and so once they have an opportunity to be represented, represented those representatives actually speak out uh, much more forcefully against these symbols on the grounds of government.
0: It it takes a while sometimes. And, uh, you know, I'm curious about the title, No Common Ground. And defenders of the Confederacy accepted so-called counter-monuments like Shreveport's Martin Luther King statue and Richmond's Arthur Ashe monument as a means of kind of mollification. So isn't that a kind of common ground? Can there be sort of common ground? or, Or what about those? Well,
3: first of all, it's just like these, you know, it's sort of a piecemeal kind of thing it's it's sort of symbolic it's not really um the equivalent you know of what what exists i mean if you, we you know the southern landscape is saturated with confederate markers monuments and memorials so one counter monument does not you know uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's it doesn't provide balance let's just say that it does not provide balance it is it is um Um, you know sort of here we'll you know we'll give you this take a few crumbs you know yeah yeah, here here's a few thing you know and and you know and uh, and and that's it you know and and they aren't equivalent and uh, um, and so uh, and this is the thing you know people I think uh, southern whites you know when they across the region you think well uh, well, you could put up a monument to Martin Luther King Jr., or you can name a street Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, or whatever. That that somehow that that appeases, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the black community, and that makes everything okay again. <laughs> uh, and it, and and obviously, it doesn't. All of these are only symbolic, um, because we know um, that you know, and and this is why I say about removal too. If if there's to be a removal. That's only one—it's a symbolic move, but it doesn't address the underlying issues of racism and white supremacy and that that longer history that has led to this moment.
0: And I wonder, as time has gone on, and the fact that Georgia uh, voted for two Democratic U.S. senators—it might have been just because people were angry at uh, Trump's bizarre shenanigans—but I wonder— is the culture changing? And certainly racism is all across the country, no question about it. But the, the politicians, I mean, for years and years, a lot of the Southern politicians have been, uh, you know, sort of a stereotype like a caricature. Is, is that changing, do you think? Is is the momentum with anti-racism and saying, come on, people, let's get over it. We lost the war, white supremacy we got to let it go. Is that is that happening? Do you think? I mean, you're down there. You must have more of a sense of it than I do.
3: Yeah. No. There. I have to say, you know, I do believe that there are people that want to make change, and and it's been this way for a while. I think, you know, the 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 uh, demography of the you know the of the South has been changing yeah. for uh, last thirty years. We're a much more diverse um, population, and so what. You know, and I think there were, you know, uh, you know, you have you know, we know about the Koch brothers, uh, but we, we have uh something called the Pope Foundation here in North Carolina that acts just like the uh Koch Foundation. Um what we what we've seen is, you know, um, especially since two thousand thirteen is when the voting rights act gets gutted is is we've got uh yeah. gerrymandering, I mean, we're so gerrymandered yes. here in, in this state. It's not that there aren't people of goodwill that want to represent our state in, in the most positive way on all sorts of issues. Yeah. It's that we're gerrymandered, and what we have now is minority rule. We have minority rule because when you don't – so, for example, the state legislature is dominated by the GOP because of gerrymandering, okay? hmm but when we elected, but we elected a Democratic governor, it was really close. We're about 50-50 there. Mm-hmm. But he, it was very close. But the reason that is because that's an open election. It's not based on districts. Uh, so you can, so, you know, it, right. but our legislature is not 50-50. I
0: right. ha- don't
3: see that, right?
0: Oh, that happens that way in so many states. And I believe it's true that, in general, across the country, there are consistently more votes for Democrats, but because of gerrymandering, we have what we have so exactly. that's something that's
3: and that's true. I just think it's really it is very true in the south you know and so when they when when they pulled off those wins in georgia in the u s Senate right what did the Georgia do immediately start changing the laws mm-hmm you know, uh, to suppress voters, because they don't want that happening again. They're trying to maintain, um, you know, a white power structure in the state.
0: Yes. And, you know, there was Jim Crow that was kind of crude back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But now, hey, we're the 21st century, so it's it's updated, but it's still the same. It's still
3: Jim Crow. This, this kind of thing is Jim Crow, and it's going on everywhere. I mean, Wisconsin's got a gerrymandering problem.
0: Really? Oh, my you goodness. Know, it's everywhere. Yes, yes. And, and, and yeah. the, the, the uh, right wing of the uh, uh, Republican Party has been very careful to focus not so much on, on, you know, Democratic with a small d elections, but more on the power of gerrymandering and the courts. That's how they really have oh, yeah. the power. And yeah. tell us about <laughs> some of the uh, heritage protection acts that Southern lawmakers are doing now.
3: Right. Well, I you know the probably the first one ever was passed in in the year 2000 by South Carolina's legislature, and that was in response to the NAACP boycott about having the Confederate battle flag flying on top of the Capitol. And so when they pulled that, took that down, they put it on the grounds of the of the Capitol on a flagpole, but they passed a law that that then made actually it was like, we're going to protect all of our monuments. And they actually defined that battle flag as a monument. Uh, so that was the first one. Um, but it's really been since the Charleston massacre in 2015 that states have passed these uh, monument laws or heritage protection acts. And North Carolina, where I live, to me, it was like the most insidious and, uh, and poorly timed piece of legislation ever, mm-hmm. Uh, passed a monument law one month after the Charleston massacre. One month. Jeez. Sure. and Not too subtle. And so, <laughs> not not at all. Because you know what they saw. What they saw is like, oh, when they saw that the that they were going to remove the Confederate battle flag from the grounds of the Capitol in South Carolina, they said, oh, you know, monuments are next right that was their thinking
2: mm-hmm. and so
3: you start seeing these laws getting passed some have been around a long time virginia's law had been around since 1904 but you have n- new laws that are being passed um in south carolina and georgia and tennessee um in alabama i mean it just goes on and on and and so um uh, these these laws are meant to first of all they remove local control so that a local government can't do anything. If mm. they, if you wanted to, you can't. Um, some of them have loopholes. Uh, North <laughs> Carolina's loophole has says, "Well, if it if it um, becomes an issue of public safety, then you can remove it." In other words, when they're defenders and you know, people want them removed and they're fighting around the monument, you know, because they, because uh-huh. of the, the issue yeah. that it, it, right. Then you can remove it. And that's what happened in Raleigh. The, the governor removed those from the Capitol. Uh, it's happened in, in a few uh, uh, cities around the state. And so, um, you know, so, uh, so it depends on where you are, what part of this, what state you're in, in terms of how those things um, operate, but they, they do really just have the opposite effect in in many cases, uh, which is not protection, but it, it leads to vandalism. Mm.
2: Um,
3: and um, you know, there's just again no recourse. They're just digging in their heels mm. and doubling down on on these uh, on these
0: statues. Ah, the lost cause digging in their heels. Hmm. For listeners who may have just tuned in, I'm Bert Cohen, and the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is historian Karen Cox, whose new book, boy, talk about timely, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. So there's the Confederate monuments, there's gerrymandering, there's voter suppression, and displays of police violence. In what ways have these passive symbols become linked to such active efforts Uh, to marginalize and intimidate.
3: They've always been these kinds of icons. They've been that, you know, they're, they're meant to intimidate. And, um, uh, and they've been at the center of uh, new, you know, at at flashpoints in Southern history of, of, of racial, uh, attempts at racial progress and push back against racial progress uh, that, you know, and so, you know, in the early Jim Crow period, this was, you know, about blatant white supremacy and, uh, and, and second-class citizenship and and legalized segregation, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, you know, in the, during the civil rights era, there was, it was about, here's an attempt at racial progress and we're going to push back against that. Um, You know, when, when, Black representatives on city councils in the South in the 70s and 80s said, "Hey, this we can't have these these things. We got to, at least they were removing, uh, trying to remove battle flags, and then and then, you know, what little progress had been made then begins to get pushed back on in the 1990s mm. um, with you know uh, the rise of you know this was the rise of the Republican Party in the House and the contract with America and all of that." Uh, was also and that was in 1994 and 1994 was also the year that the League of the South was formed ah. which was a much more radical uh, confederate um organization and so they they've always been um I you know I I consider monuments one tool in the arsenal of white supremacy.
0: Oh, ah, that's yeah that's interesting that that uh, describes them. And uh <sighs> You know, it it does talk about minority rule. Minority has ruled. And I discovered a quote from abolitionist Wendell Phillips, who, uh, after the war, noted quite presciently, I think, he said, maybe the South would never again leave the Union or take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. And I think that's exactly what happened that minority has ruled. The Trumpists, to me, are uh, like openly blatantly proudly the embodiment of the these particular old southern racist values uh and they obviously carried the confederate flags proudly into the capitol building as a woman from the south your perspective your thoughts the the republican party didn't used to be that party i I remember uh the republican party was just you know pro-business and small government and they've radically changed i think so what about that uh, oh. ruling from within
3: it's all yes they've always ruled from within and you know the parties in terms of what they represent have certainly changed over time and so um uh, you know in in the 19th century the democratic party was the party of white supremacy was the white they yes. called it the white man's party yes okay yes it was um and and what's interesting about this is that there are you know uh, uh people that try to suggest that uh that democrats in the nineteenth century are the same kind of democrats today. You know, they that you know, people like Dinesh D'Souza are like out there perpetuating these falsehoods about history. Um what happened though is in uh nineteen forty five when the Democratic Party switched to um the national democratic party switched mm-hmm. to uh including civil rights in its platform, that's when Southern Democrats bolted. Yes uh, and so you, you first see uh, the, the Dixie crabs, uh mm-hmm. in 1948.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then eventually those Democrats move into the Republican Party, and those Southern Democrats move into the Republican Party, and then the Republican Party is eventually pushed toward a more conservative um, platform. And the Democrats, um, you know, are obviously representing uh, civil rights, um, you know, and, and other sorts of progressive legislation. And in
0: 1965, when that Southerner LBJ signed the uh, Voting Rights Act, that must have really, uh, you know, closed the door on any uh, racist Democrats staying within the the, the Democratic Party. They, they must not have been too pleased with LBJ. No,
3: prob- no. no. <laughs> I mean, there were there were there were people ha- who were hangers-on to the Democratic Party who were still. Kind of thought about the Democratic Party in the, in the way, uh, you know. I mean, Jess, I think Jesse Helms had been a yes. Democrat. Ah,
2: I forgot. Right, that
3: and, he, and he switched to the Republican Party. Same thing with, you know, Strom Thurmond, who, yes. led, who was the presidential candidate of the Dixiecrats, who mm-hmm. ended up a Republican.
0: Yeah, well, that's where they are now. And you draw parallels between the Confederacy's lost cause version of history and Trump's post election challenge and it's associated campaign of disinf- of disinformation. Say more about those parallels please.
3: Yeah, I, I I think that you know what you see is like it's it's in the same way, you know, in the way that you know hit you know he was defeated um in the election and and the confederacy was defeated during you know in in the civil war. Mm-hmm.
2: Um
3: but it it's it's like that is you know it's like the facts don't matter. <laughs> Right. We're going to go. Facts don't matter. You know, we're we're going to continue. We're going to, you know, in his case, it's, it's that, um, you know, he's perpetuating the big lie that the election was stolen. Um, you know, and the Confederacy said, well, you know, our cause was just and we, it wasn't about slavery when we know that it was about slavery. And, um, you know, and so uh, there those those parallels. And then there was the, the you know, the entire. Uh, his, you know, kind of at the at the end of his uh, uh, presidency, you know, he started this this program, you know, of you know of the 1776 commission oh, and
2: know.
3: how they were going to re, you know, revamp American how American history is taught. And even though you know it was done through an executive order and that was dismissed by you know Biden once he came into office, there are people that still believe. That that's the way forward, and so yet yeah, that's why you have um legislation um being proposed in states um about re- you know uh, returning to a study of the founding fathers where you can't talk about things like uh, you know the bad parts of of American history. <laughs>
0: myth over reality love it it's uh, it's so much easier it's so much more fun to believe in myth it's so much more reassuring to believe in myth so removing confederate monuments is an intermediate goal is it not i mean it's not an end in itself what do you believe
3: no.
0: must follow from that
3: i i think that there has to be a real reckoning with the racial history of this country beginning with slavery and, and extending into Jim Crow. And we can talk about mass incarceration and yes. all these sorts of things. I mean, we have a, a long history, a bad history of how, uh, of, as Americans, of how we've dealt with race in this country. And and so a removal is, is just one, as a symbolic uh, effort, but it is not the, the end game. I do, do believe there has to be some uh, truth and reconciliation.
0: And with any personal growth, if you don't face the reality, you're not going to have that growth. You've got to face the reality of it. And here we are as, as a country. We're trying to do that, and hopefully your book can help. The book is No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Thank you so much for being with us. It's, uh, it's quite a struggle, and it never seems to end, but uh, maybe we're getting there. I don't know. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me on your show.
1: Southern men, the thunders mutter, Northern flags and south winds flutter to arms to two arms to arms two swarms, two swarms in Dixie. Send them back your fierce defiance, stamp upon the cursed alliance, to arms, to arms, to arms, in Dixie, advance the flag of Dixie, hurrah. Land. We take our stand and live or die for Dixie. Who are, who are, who and conquer peace for Dixie. Who are, who are, who and conquer peace for Dixie. Fear no danger, shun no labor, lift up rifle, pike and saber to arms, to arms, to arms, two arms, two arms, two arms, in, two arms in Dixie. Shoulder pressing close to shoulder, let the odds make each heart molder to arms, 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 two arms, two arms, in Dixie. Advance the flag of Dixie Hurrah, hurrah For Dixie's land we take our stand And live or die for Dixie To arms, arms, arms And conquer peace for Dixie To arms, 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 arms And conquer peace for Dixie Whereupon your country's altar never to submit or falter to arms, warms, to arms, to arms, in they. Till the spoilers are defeated, till the Lord's work is completed. Two arms, to arms, to arms, to arms, to arms. Dixie advance the flag of Dixie, hurrah, hurrah. For Dixie's land we take our stand and live or die for Dixie. Two arms, two arms, to arms, and conquer peace for Dixie. To arms, two arms, two arms, and conquer peace for Dixie.